Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Welcome back, Failed Utopians. It's Anna, your adventurous podcast host. On today's episode, the Weimar Republic. Also known as Weimar Germany, this was a prosperous, utopian post-World War I period, which lasted from 1918 to 1933. It was during this time that Germany underwent a revolution, transitioning from a monarchy to a republic. It ended when Hitler ascended through the Reichstag, became chancellor, exploited a critical loophole in the Weimar Constitution, and by 1935, he was the Fuhrer, a dictator. How could a golden age of economic prosperity and cultural renaissance possibly have failed so miserably that it gave way to Nazi Germany and the Holocaust? World War I raged from 1914 to 1918. Germany's Kaiser Wilhelm II had entered the war to support Austria-Hungary, which needed Germany's support to declare war since they'd be going up against Russia, which of course supported Serbia. Germany had not technically started this brutal and bloody war, but nevertheless, World War I didn't go well for Germany. They were on the losing side. Two million soldiers were lost, four million injured, and overall, over half of German troops became casualties. The country's debt also surged above $150 thanks to ballooning war costs. The Kaiser had given Austria-Hungary a blank check to fight the war. To make things worse, the British Navy kept German ports blocked, disrupting food supplies arriving on ships. So about 750,000 Germans starved. Understandably, Germans just wanted the war over. In September 1918, German generals proposed an armistice to end World War I. The following month in October, there was an event called the Kiel Mutiny, in which the Kaiser tried to get the Navy to continue the war, but they rebelled. The Kaiser finally abdicated, knowing that without the support of the military, he was finished and fled to Holland on November 9, 1918. This resulted in Germany becoming a democracy. After a brief power struggle among Germany's various movements and political parties, the leader of the Social Democratic Party, or SPD, named Ebert, took power and declared a new republic just like in Star Wars. This was the German Revolution, and it took place over just a couple of days. Time was of the essence because they feared a communist takeover. The new government was established as a parliamentary system. The following year, in 1919, Germany's new ruling party, the SPD, signed the Treaty of Versailles, which you may remember from history class officially ended the First World War, although the actual fighting itself had ended in 1918. 
There was tension between the SPD party and the farther left party in Germany, the USPD, which had been very upset when the Social Democratic Party rose to power after the revolution. Tensions were further inflamed when the SPD accepted all of the conditions of the Treaty of Versailles, essentially capitulating without the Allied powers making any concessions. The parties on the right in Germany, including the Nazis, were angry about that and they claimed that Germany was being stabbed in the back and that it could actually have won the war. To add insult to injury, one of the conditions of the treaty was that the German army had to be restricted to a maximum of 100,000 soldiers, which put a lot of German men out of work. With the new Weimar Constitution being signed in 1919, a few important laws were created. Everyone over 20 years of age could vote, and they also established proportional representation, so every party with seats in the Reichstag, which was the parliament, had votes. The Constitution also established that the chancellor is chosen by the president, and there were provisions made for free speech and assembly, democracy. But it also included the now ominous Article 48. The president could suspend the Reichstag in any emergency and rule as a dictator through the chancellor. I'm sure you've guessed it. This is the article later exploited by Hitler to come to power as a dictator. From the beginning, the SPD government faced challenges and struggled to hold together a coalition. They were a moderate left party and they faced suspicion and anger from both the far right and the far left. In early 1919, the KPD faction of the USPD, which was the far left, attempted a failed overthrow of the government, which is referred to as the Spartacist Revolution. The Spartacists were communists who favored a Soviet-style government. The ruling party, the SPD, used the military and the right-leaning Freikorps volunteer militias of former World War I soldiers to put down the rebellion, which, as you can imagine, resulted in a lot of bitterness between the different factions on both right and left. The SPD lost even further support from the extreme left after they used the military again to brutally put down a revolution in Bavaria, in which their radical communist leaders, Levian and Levinay, had declared it a Soviet republic. Ultimately, the SPD faced a devastating lack of support from other parties, especially other parties on the left, who ideally should have been their allies. The extreme right, including but not only the Nazi party, were gaining popular support through messages of patriotism or nationalism, irrational anger at having lost World War I, and stoking fears of a communist takeover. The right gained support from many Germans, including lots of wealthy elites, the army, and academics. There was a right-wing attempt to take over the government in 1920, but again, it failed and the SPD remained in power. By 1923, Germany was still having a bad time. They couldn't keep up with reparation payments to allied nations as they were required to do under the Treaty of Versailles, which had forced them to accept a guilt clause. Since Germany too was war-torn, they found it very difficult to meet their financial obligations under the treaty. 
The government panicked and started printing more of their currency, the German paper mark, which of course led to a devaluing of the currency. Germany began to miss payments, and France, which took a very harsh approach toward Germany after the war, decided to occupy an industrial region of Germany called the Ruhr. The German government encouraged a strike by businesses and workers in the Ruhr to protest the occupation, which further tanked the German economy. Sadly, this led to widespread poverty among Germans. Essentially, their economy was in ruins by this time, just four years after the establishment of the Weimar Republic. Enter Adolf Hitler. In November 1923, Hitler decided to harness the economic misery and anger of everyday Germans to try to stage a revolt, which was called the Munich Putsch. Some people call this the Beer Hall Putsch because it was all set to start at a beer hall where Munich's local officials were gathered. The far-right NSDAP party, a.k.a. the Nazi party, planned to seize control of Bavaria starting in Munich and then progressing on to Berlin in order to take over the government. But at the last minute, Gustav von Kahr, who was the state commissioner in Bavaria and a key player in the plot, lost his nerve. The revolt was very badly planned, and ultimately it was a failure. Hitler was sent to jail, and it was during this period of imprisonment that he dictated Mein Kampf, the guiding document for the Nazi party. After these tumultuous events, Gustav Streisemann, a right-wing foreign minister, stepped in to serve temporarily as chancellor to deal with the multiple crises and did succeed in removing the French from the Ruhr and introduced a new German currency, the Rentenmark, to combat the severe hyperinflation of the paper mark that had torpedoed the German economy. He set up a state bank called Rentenbank to issue a limited amount of the new currency, the Rentenmark, the value of which was tied to the price of gold. The currency was also backed by German industry and agricultural land, giving the currency actual value. In August 1924, control of the currency was given to the newly established Reichbank, and the Rentenmark was renamed, you guessed it, the Reichmark. Streisemann resigned as chancellor after just 103 days, but he remained foreign minister. In April of 1924, Streisemann negotiated the Dawes Plan, which reduced the reparations payments owed by Germany. Allied countries promised in return they wouldn't invade German territory again, and the United States loaned Germany $5 billion to help rebuild and keep up with its payment obligations. Germany's right wing was angered that Germany had agreed to keep paying reparations and that the country was dependent on America. Over the next few years, Germany negotiated several treaties and pacts which essentially allowed them back into league with the Allies and promised peaceful relations between Germany and several other world powers, including the U.S., France, Italy, and others. With the new infusion of cash from the Dawes Plan, German industry was able to modernize and modeled itself after American industrialism and the assembly line model, which was booming around that time, courtesy of Henry Ford and other great American industrialists. 
Germany could also now invest in housing, schools, hospitals, libraries, infrastructure, social services like unemployment benefits, and other development. In 1925, the Locarno Pact was signed, which demilitarized the Rhineland region. Streisemann got the Nobel Peace Prize, and Germany got back into the League of Nations. In 1928, Germany even joined several other countries in signing the Briand-Kellogg Pact, which denounced war and promised not to use it to resolve conflict among nations. It's sad to think that was just a few short years before the Second World War. But 1924 to 1929 was the golden age for the new Weimar Utopia as Germany shared in the opulence of the Golden Twenties along with other wealthy Western nations. Political extremism had been quashed after Hitler's failed Munich Putsch and Gustav Streisemann's gambit introducing a new currency and greatly reducing support for extremists and increasing support for moderates had worked, ushering in a new period of stability and prosperity. Democracy, peace, and wealth appeared to be the future of Weimar Germany. While economic advancement spread throughout Germany's population, including in the working and middle classes, so did an arts and cultural renaissance due to the country's new democratic freedoms. Knowing what we know now, it's quite bittersweet to think of this short-lived period of peace and prosperity, knowing how optimistic everyday Germans must have been about their future. Despite rapid modernization and economic and mass culture booms, underneath it all, there were some warning signs of potential trouble ahead. Germany was still deeply in debt to the United States. Worse, they used their loan money from the U.S. to pay their war reparations to other countries, who then used that money to pay back their war debts to the United States. This created a cycle of intercountry loans that relied too heavily on a successful American economy with surplus cash and cheap loans. An economic crash in America would take Germany down with it, which is exactly what happened. Some other serious problems with the German economy actually underpinned the veneer of growth, prosperity, and American-style consumption of the 20s. For one thing, while Germany had enthusiastically embraced American industrialist principles and thrown itself headfirst into assembly line manufacturing, what they lacked were new innovations to keep the industry dynamic, leading to stagnation in the temporarily booming industrial sector. In addition, the heady consumerism and booming culture and arts were largely contained within the urban areas of the country, while rural areas and the agriculture sector lost out. Many people had moved to cities for jobs and to enjoy the new thrills of modern post-war life. But agriculture was still extremely important to the economy, and this period did not treat farmers well. Farmers had actually benefited slightly from the hyperinflation that marked the earlier part of the decade because it gave them a chance to pay off their debts and land mortgages. Stabilization of the economy had the unintended negative consequence of hitting these farmers very hard financially and sending their taxes several times higher. They were also being forced to compete on a world market that faced a glut of agricultural products, driving prices down. 
Ultimately, this became a critical base of support for the SDF government that was lacking once the country hit another inevitable period of instability. Small business and shopkeepers also took a big hit due to the rapid influx of big business, including department stores, which could easily undercut their prices. Altogether, this meant that this brief golden age benefited society unequally, favoring large cities and large companies, while leaving rural areas and small business owners behind. Unfortunately, the Nazi party took advantage of the dissatisfaction of non-urban communities to try to garner support for their cause, which was now showing veins of anti-Semitic sentiment in the form of blaming Jews for being an international controlling power to which the peasant class had to pay most of their income in taxes. And it wasn't just the Nazis harnessing the unrest. Conservative and religious groups were decrying the so-called loss of Germany's pure morality due to increasing urbanization, consumerism, social liberalization, and a relative increase in freedoms and rights for the country's women, all of which produced a cultural backlash. As the country experimented with democracy, much of the conservative portion of society preferred to cling to the past, and remember, their democracy was still very much an experiment. Everyday Germans didn't have a lot of knowledge and experience in regard to participating as citizens of a democracy. For those left behind in the economic expansion, it didn't seem like it was working. Some longed for the days of the past when Germany had been ruled by the monarchy. One example of Germany's tenuous conversion to a republic was the president, Paul von Hindenburg, who was elected in 1925. Von Hindenburg was very much of the old guard and represented Germany's strongman past. At the time, this was considered a benefit because he was essentially a familiar and trusted figure for the German public at a time when they were transitioning into the new and unknown territory of a democracy. He could be viewed as a stabilizing figure providing continuity during the transition. But in the end, it seemed to be a harbinger of the country's ultimate backlash and return to dictatorship. In 1929, the USA experienced the Great Wall Street Crash. The market plummeted and billions of dollars of investor money was wiped out, sending the U.S. into an economic spiral, which took much of the world along for the ride. One of the many consequences of the fallout was that the U.S. asked for all the money it had loaned to Germany back and could no longer give Germany the financial help it needed, leading Germany into another economic depression. Tragically, the widely popular Gustav Streisemann, who may have been the one person who could have steered Germany through another onslaught of crises, also died that year, leading to yet another political crisis. The limitation of the Weimar Republic was that there was no loyalty from key constituencies like the army, judiciary, academic institutions, business, and landowners. The army was still resentful of the Versailles Treaty. The lack of support from the judiciary was relevant because judges declined to harshly punish people like Hitler after the Munich Putsch in a show of support for the far right. Hitler was imprisoned, but 
perpetrators of previous revolts, such as the Spartacist Revolution, were punished much more harshly by being executed. Business leaders didn't like the SPD's support for workers' rights and trade unions. But when the SPD eventually capitulated to big business and started to roll back some of their pro-worker policies, like the eight-hour workday, of course, that put them on the outs with many of the workers themselves. Academics missed the Kaiser and criticized the New Republic. They wanted a strong German dictator and felt that a democratic style of government with fair representation was bogged down and took too long to enact new policies. It didn't help that the SPD government went through several cabinets in a few short years, which opened it to the criticism that a representative government was weak and unstable. I'm sure it appeared that way to a country that was used to the long-term stability of the monarchy. Many Germans also still feared a communist takeover, so they preferred right-wing government even if that led to some restricted freedoms. Due in part to all these factors, in 1933, Hitler had gained so much popular support that he convinced the president to appoint him as chancellor to try to get a handle on the new set of crises the country was facing. Yes, I know earlier in the episode, we left Hitler in prison after his failed beer hall putsch in 1924. He'd been convicted of high treason and sentenced to five years in prison. Five years? Really? For treason? That's what I was getting at earlier about the judiciary being loyal to the right wing, not the Republic. But here's what will really knock your socks off. He served less than a year of his sentence long enough to finish Mein Kampf. And then they let him go and said, don't try to take over the country again. But of course, once he was appointed chancellor, he outmaneuvered the president and the Reichstag, becoming the dictator known as the Fuhrer. Hitler's time in prison may even have made his political position stronger as he used the publicity surrounding his trial to avoid talking about the putsch and turn the conversation to his hyper-nationalist views and blaming Jews, France, and Marxism for all of the country's problems. The conservative judges in his trial allowed the tirades, which were lapped up by the press. Now, I know all this doesn't begin to explain Nazi Germany, but there are a few other factors to consider, and we can't possibly talk about the transition from Weimar Republic to Nazi Germany without discussing propaganda. Hitler was a master of mass communication, which was kind of a new thing. The printing press may have been the beginning of mass communication, but in the 1920s, radio was the next big front. Radio had just been invented, and Hitler harnessed the new medium brilliantly. You could almost say his distinctive speaking style with a crescendo building up to an extremely intense peak where he was essentially just shouting was almost made for radio. The popularity of radio was surging around Europe and especially in Germany. Soon, millions of families had radios in their homes, so the Führer could talk directly to the people on a daily basis. He used this powerful platform to spread messages of German pride and nationalism and vowed to retake territories lost in World War I. 
Remember, the far right in Germany was still obsessed with this fantasy that World War I could have been won. But this was only the tip of the propaganda iceberg. We all know the name Joseph Goebbels, who headed the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda. The ministry expertly spread the Nazi message not through just radio and the press, but art, music, theater, films, books, and even educational materials. Thanks to the Weimar Republic, all of these mediums were thriving and sadly ripe for Nazi exploitation. There's so much to be said about the role of propaganda, but I think the main takeaway here is the degree to which messages were tailored to specific audiences. They even used an early form of audience polling and pushed messages that focused more on either nationalism and German pride or hateful rhetoric and anti-foreign sentiment, depending on the audience. This seems so poignant given where we are with social media and media in general today. While Hitler and his Nazi party, as well as other far-right German political parties, exploited fear, resentment, and specifically anti-Semitism, when Hitler rose to power, it wasn't with the promise of a holocaust. In fact, by the time the horrors of concentration camps and mass murder were underway, the Nazis had been in power for several years. But on the rise to power, the Nazis did use powerful propaganda techniques to create the false enemy of the Jews and others. Sadly, Hitler didn't invent anti-Semitism, and religious and racial anti-Semitism had been swirling around Europe for hundreds of years. For the first few centuries, anti-Semitism was essentially based in religion. But eventually, anti-Semites reframed the rhetoric into a racial issue. It was this line of thinking that the Nazis latched onto, using propaganda to convince Germans that Jewish people were not in fact Germans, but of a separate race. In 1936, Hitler sent troops to the Rhineland, which was a region in West Germany that was demilitarized in the Treaty of Versailles. The area borders on France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Its main purpose was to provide a buffer zone for France so that Germany couldn't invade its border with no warning. The German military was cagey about France because France, of course, had a much better equipped military and, as I mentioned earlier, took a hard line toward Germany after World War I. And remember, in the Treaty of Versailles, the German army had been limited to no more than 100,000 soldiers. So at that time, they had only a very small military. But what they did was a trick, where they would send in troops marching over the Rhineland bridges into the area they weren't supposed to be in, and then they would quietly sneak back at night the way they came, so that the next morning they could march back in with bands and fanfare and essentially pulled a little scam to make it look like they had a ton of troops entering the Rhineland. So it was sort of more of Hitler's shrewd harnessing of communication and propaganda. They didn't have the military chops, so he found another way. This incident is really eerie to consider because if any of the future Allied forces had essentially called Hitler's bluff at this juncture when the German military was so weak, that could have been the end of Hitler. The entire Second World War could potentially have been headed off at this juncture, but unfortunately, his bluff 
worked, and neither France nor any other European country stopped this march, which was essentially the precursor to Germany's invasion of Europe. Unchecked, Hitler's troops marched next into Austria, then to Czechoslovakia. France and Britain were a bit alarmed and made some noise about it, but again, no one intervened to stop the incursion. Then came the Polish invasion with the Soviet Union's help, and you know the rest. Wait, you're thinking, wasn't the USSR on the Allied side in World War II? Yes, Germany went on to attack the USSR in 1941 in an attempt to establish German hegemony. In fact, Hitler had always wanted to expand east, so that shows you just how cynical their little secret pact to conquer and divide up Poland really was. Hitler didn't mean to start a world war. He wasn't even trying to start a European war, but he badly misjudged when he waged war on Poland. He and some of his advisors were convinced that the rest of Europe would continue standing back, especially once he teamed up with the Soviet Union. Big miscalculation. He was wrong, and World War II was now underway. The peace and prosperity of the Weimar Republic has been called a golden age, but some say gold-plated might be more accurate. Despite the shiny veneer, there were some deep-seated problems lurking just below the surface, and ultimately, the Weimar democracy was too weak to withstand Hitler's autocratic rise. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Failed Utopia Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.